Hi, this is Stacy, the Baby Maker Robert. I have put together more than a decade of my clinical experience into developing the first online mentoring program that deals with the ever-growing area of natural fertility. My Baby Maker Network Mentoring Program is an online interactive program where you will learn how to address all aspects of fertility issues. If you are ready to be a part of an atmosphere that helps you build your practice while helping couples build their family, I look forward to getting to know you in the Baby Maker Mentoring Program. Please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab for more information and to register. FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line from Chicago in the USA is Stacey Roberts, the baby maker. A former physiotherapist turned herbalist and naturopath, Stacey has been involved in healthcare since 1989 in both conventional and complementary medicine. She's an internationally recognised natural fertility expert, and she's assisted people in over 32 countries with improving their overall health and well-being by addressing I love to say this, not just their physical, but also their physiological and psychological health with complementary products and services. And I do really admire the way that you treat people as a whole person visiting you, indeed as whole couples. So welcome back to FX Medicine, Stacey Roberts. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be back. I don't know what the weather's like over there, but it's a little bit chillier. You're just coming into summer over there, aren't you? Correct. It's summer, summer in Chicago, so I've been having hot temperatures lately, which is nice. Yeah, but you've still got wind. A windy city. Not you. I, sorry, I just realised what I'd said. I take my probiotics every day, so I'm, I'm good. <laughs> Stacey, today on FX Medicine, we're going to be discussing a real quandary, something that affects so many, many women, and it's a real healthcare burden, and that is endometriosis. I think we really need to go right. first, though. What is endometriosis? Well, Andrew, it is, you know, uh, right now, it's actually being looked at as a possible autoimmune issue that women uh, experience. But from oh. what we know uh, from the past, it really is um, adhesions or the part of the endometrial lining somehow gets outside of the uterus and then attaches onto the different structures outside the uterus, whether it be just the peritoneal cavity or or the uh, uterus or the fallopian tubes, the bowel, bladder, heck, they've even found it on, in the knee and the nose. Um, you know, it's been found in different parts of the body yeah. as well, but mostly, uh, you know, in structures in the peritoneal cavity. Yeah. Um, I, I erroneously, maybe not erroneously, but I call them tumors sometime, but it's not really that, is it? Mm -hmm. But they are growths. Correct. But but if I fall Correct. into that habit like during a, this, it, just forgive me. I don't mean cancerous tumors. Just I'm just referring to a growth. Sure, no problem. Yeah, it's more more like a cyst. If you imagine it, you know, uh, let's say the endometrial lining splashes on the ovary, and the body, in its ultimate wisdom, tries to to contain that 
that uh, tissue that should not be there. So it forms a cyst around it. And then every time we have a a, a woman has a period that proliferates and then can burst and um, cause other adhesions and and other endometriosis around uh, in different areas and uh, can be quite painful, but not necessarily. Yeah, we'll discuss that in another question because I think it's something that goes, that's being uh, perpetuated. But who is more at risk of suffering from endometriosis? Well, the prevalence is you know, 10% of women potentially uh, suffer from endometriosis, but, but because it, you know, sometimes there's no pain with it, that number is probably very understated. And in my clinical experience, I have kind of a, uh, I guess, a stereotypical female who would, um, who I always am suspicious of having endometriosis. Uh, and there's actually two. One is someone who's had polycystic ovaries who um, has not had a period uh, for a period of time and therefore not having progesterone opposing her estrogen. So her lining can still be um, thickening, thickening, and then could potentially break away and cause uh, endometrial endometrial cysts and things. And the other woman is someone who is always on the go, 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 go. Her immune system seems to be depressed. Um, she just pushes through pain. She's having have had pain since she was a teenager, but just takes you know, medication every month and, you know, just pushes through it instead of resting and listening um, to her, you know, her body and figuring out what's wrong. Because every time she goes to the doctor, they say, oh, that's, you know, normal. Um, Just take this medication, nephrogesis or whatever it is to get rid of it. So it's kind of the woman who's on the go, go, go. Now, those are, again, very stereotypical and that will kind of tip me off to looking at it. But, you know, any woman can really present with endometriosis, especially if she is most most times experiencing estrogen dominance is usually what coincides with the endometriosis. Right. So I'm saying I'm thinking here that a lot of women who may think they're suffering from PMS pain, dysmenorrhea, they may well be suffering from endometriosis. It's just that it's not diagnosed because they just treat the pain as pain. Correct. And and so many people experience pain with their period, dysmenorrhea. And again, doesn't necessarily have to be endometriosis, but could be. But because so many women experience that, everyone thinks it's normal. Women just think it's normal instead of just common. So getting the point across to women that, you know, yeah, it is common, but that doesn't necessarily make it normal. Mm. Obviously, it's inside, so it's going to have that issue with diagnosis. But why is it so poorly diagnosed? And and I don't mean poorly as a blame thing, but why is it so um, hard to diagnose? I think it's difficult to diagnose based on the type of equipment that they have that's not sensitive enough to be able to pick those uh, adhesions up uh, and the cysts up on different areas of the uh, in the peritoneal cavity, different organ structures and things. Um, it's easiest to find on the ovaries because they can detect the hemorrhagic cyst on the ovary, which whenever that is present, especially if patients have had past pain and dysmenorrhea that has increased during their period and then suddenly goes away after potentially that cyst bursting. Um, then you know you can assume that potentially that woman uh, should get investigated for or should have investigations done for endometriosis. There are also some physicians who are very very good in their palpation techniques, where they can palpate certain areas uh, during an internal exam, and you know can uh, you know very much uh, pinpoint the woman who's experiencing endometriosis by the the feeling of those adhesions and those lesions that when they do an internal. So um, some of it depends on the physician's ability to be able to uh, discover it and then the sensitivity of the uh, equipment, such as um, more highly sensitive ultrasounds 
uh, versus the, the standard ultrasound that's done. Stacey, I, I need to ask a question, which, as I said before, is sort of perpetuated and maybe taken out of context a little bit. Is there an inverse association with tumour size and pain, i.e. more pain is less um, adhesions and less pain you can get quite um, profuse adhesions. Is that the case in all cases? Definitely not in all cases. You can have um, no pain and have no endometriosis, but then you can have no pain and severe to moderate to minimal endometriosis. And you can have um, uh, extreme pain and no endometriosis and, you know, minimal to moderate pain and, again, no no endometriosis. So it really is all across the board. That That is definitely not, not standard. And that's right. what makes it so difficult to diagnose without a laparoscopy, yeah. which is the, the standard best way to say whether or not a woman has it. And just to drop in about another reason why it's difficult to assess is because, you know, from an ultrasound of the abdomen, if uh, the position of where the endometriosis is on the back of the uterus or on certain parts of the bowel, it would be very difficult for an ultrasound to be able to pick that up. And what about the size of adhesions under the influence of hormonal fluctuations during the period? Does that change dramatically? Definitely. So it tends to be estrogen dependent. So the um, leading up to ovulation, when estrogen levels are rising, uh, that will be a time where if, if they do have pay, pain, the patients will have pain uh, at that time. Sometimes at that time and prior to their period, um, they will have, or, or sorry, prior to and with their period, they will uh, not only have uh, pain, but they'll have changes in their bowel. So if they have changes in bowel function from mostly to diarrhea, oftentimes that's a sign that there may be endometriosis present on the bowel. Another sign okay. would be pain with intercourse. Again, something that women won't necessarily talk about unless you ask them because they may think that's normal or they may think they may not even think about because they have pain in a certain position with intercourse that that is indicative of anything. So um, it could also be indicative of, you know, a constipation if their uh, bowel, you know, have, they're not eliminating on a regular basis too. So nothing's ever really cut and dry with endometriosis, but you can get certain signs and symptoms. If you do a good enough evaluation, you can kind of, uh, you know, uh, have enough information to either refer them on or obviously treat them uh, with herbs and supplements that we can talk about in a little bit. Yeah. Um, so are there any long-term ill effects from endometriosis other than just pain and a little bit of, di a little bit, he says, dis major discomfort. Um, is it just a painful sort of condition or can it lead to real problems later on? Well, it can uh, lead to fertility issues and potentially damage of the tubes, scarring of the tubes um, and making it very difficult for a woman to become pregnant uh, naturally. Uh, other things that can perforate the bowel if it gets extremely mm. bad, and then obviously that's a, a huge issue. And you know, some, and again, pain, uh, you know, missing work, um, not being able to function, quality of life—all those things are are also uh, potential issues with long-term uh, severe endometriosis. And I'm even thinking things like, you know, as you said, scarring of the bowel, you, you know, strictures and chronic bowel Absolutely. issues, and then you've got a whole sequelae of altered bowel function, hemorrhoids, even prolapsed rectums, and da ba dee ba da ba da It just yeah. goes everywhere. Absolutely. What and the emotional aspect of it, too. You know, if, if uh, from a fertility standpoint, obviously that creates a significant uh, emotional 
issue for the couple, but also, uh, you know, if they're having pain with intercourse and they're not, then they're not having subsequently not having intercourse that can create problems with the, with the couple as well too. So there's a whole emotional aspect that goes along with um, the woman dealing with endometriosis that is often overlooked. So apart, when you talk about scarring of the tubes, are we talking about a, a risk of safety there, for instance, like ectopic pregnancy? Potentially, sure. If um, it, you know there is scarring of the tubes or the tubes are altered in their uh, structure or function for whatever it mean, means due to having endometriosis on them, uh, obviously, if you think of endometriosis, endometriosis is a very inflammatory condition, very mm. angry condition uh, from the point of that lining being outside of where it should be. Uh, absolutely, that could be uh, contributing to, like I said, infertility or uh, potentially ectopic pregnancy if the, if the fertilized uh, egg can't get through. And what about the success of treatments? Like you, you spoke earlier about, you know, the use of NSAIDs and, you know, um, uh, naprogesic and things like that. Uh, I should say naproxen sodium. Um, but um, how efficacious are they when we're just decreasing pain and a little bit of inflammation with regards to cyclooxygenase, with regards yeah. to the yeah, broad well, inflammatory aspects of, of um, endometriosis? Well, as we know, they, those those drugs long term can create more problems than than uh, they solve. However, you know, because they're only once a month per se for women who just have the pain with their period, or or twice a month that they also have with ovulation, it's often kind of looked at as oh, it's not a big deal. However, um, it's not addressing you know the underlying problem, and therefore uh, you know, the endometriosis can go on and on and on. So the other medical treatment um, is is putting them on the pill. Now, for some women, this seems to work well with endometriosis, probably binding you know, the estrogen receptor sites on, and, and therefore uh, improving their pain and potentially improving their uh, estrogen levels and then not having a problem when they come off the pill. But for other women, it can exact, seems to exacerbate their condition where they actually have significantly worse symptoms either on the pill or coming off the pill. Now, my guess, based on what we know from um, genetics now in the, in the human genome, is there are probably women who have certain uh, gene variations, certain SNPs that are going to be more susceptible to developing the endometriosis on the pill, uh, or as other women, it would, it would be more beneficial. So I'm ex- excited to see that type of research coming out down the road so we can you know, be able to identify women who um, absolutely should definitely not be on the pill um, if they uh, as a treatment for endometriosis. And and what about natural treatments? How efficacious are they? What what herbs or or interventions indeed stand out? I'm thinking here about things like yoga or acupuncture. What what things work? Well, it, again, as always, when we have our talks, Andrew, it's always dependent on the person who's sitting in front of you to see what's going to work. So we've got to evaluate, okay, what's going on with this person? So let's say somebody comes in with severe endometriosis, um, Sometimes in the public system, they'll go in for a laparoscopy, and to my absolute amazement, what they'll do is go in and say, oh, yep, you have endometriosis, and then close them up and send them send them away without actually doing anything about really? it and taking it out. Uh, yes, I've had that happen. So I've always instruct women to talk to their physician if they are on the in the public system that go, going to have the surgery. Um, to ask the physician, if it's there, are you going to take it out? And what's your experience in, in doing that? And wow. um, so that they feel comfortable with that. 
But when that's happened with patients who have had severe endometriosis, it's very important that they know that it can be a, a long period of time before they actually get relief and then potentially the endometriosis in, uh, being addressed and improving their fertility. For example, I had a patient who came in and she was in every single symptom of endometriosis. She had, she, this is before I, I knew about what they would do with uh, the public system and, and surgeries for laparoscopies related to endometriosis. She came back and said, yep, the doctor said I have it and it's severe, um, but they didn't do anything about it. She did not want to have another laparoscopy um, because she was afraid of more adhesions and scarring, so she just wanted to treat it naturally. And I just said to her up front, I said, you know, with the you know the severe nature of what you, what you have and what you're experiencing, and this is not going to turn around in three months. Mm. And it took us about 14, 15 months to, for her to be symptom-free, I would say 90% symptom-free, and another six months for her to become pregnant. So wow. most women aren't that patient in regards to dealing with the endometriosis. So yeah. many times there's a combination of what we do in the clinic naturally to try to work on that estrogen dominance and rebalance the estrogen progesterone levels uh, in a variety of ways, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then also, um, you know, suggest that they go to a very skilled surgeon um, and have it as much of it removed as possible so that we kind of clean the slate and then can boost up the immune system because the immune systems, you know, you're the best defense against endometriosis because when these adhesions and these cysts, when this endometrial lining gets into the uh, peritoneal cavity, the immune system should go in there and clean it up. But if the immune system suppressed or unable to do that, it's kind of, in my opinion, again, I don't have any scientific research to say this, but it makes common sense that the body kind of triages that it, endometriosis at that point is not going to kill you. So mm -hmm. if the immune system has to take care of other things, then the endometriosis is left to continue to be a problem. Right. So then that's where the adrenals come in. As I said, the, the person who's on the go, 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 I was pushing, 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 and their cortisol levels are high, 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 and then gradually decrease, decrease, decrease. Over time, their immune system becomes suppressed, and again, they're decreasing their defense against the endometriosis. So the combination of the two... Um, for some women, works well for them to have it removed. And then from a natural standpoint, what we want to do is identify, okay, if they have the estrogen dominance, is it estrogen normal or optimal? And then is it low progesterone? So mm. we go from the standpoint of addressing that through things like Chase Street. Yep. Uh, that, that's oftentimes a great treatment for that. Sometimes we need to look at when there's elevated estrogen, either estradiol or estrone, we look at things like schisandra, which is a great herb for boosting the immune system. It's a great adaptogen. It's also great for supporting liver function. So the, that's a great herb to look at for um, endometriosis. And of course, from a pain point of view, we can look at Jamaican dogwood. We can look at cramp bark. But one thing I've noticed clinically with cramp bark, Andrew, is if you utilize cramp bark and the pain goes away completely, mm -hmm. it's within the first you know, month or two of using it, it's less likely that it's endometriosis. Now, that isn't, ah, that's good. Uh, the case, isn't the case all the time, um, but it's uh, definitely been correlated in a number of cases over the years. So if you give cramp bark, if the practitioner gives cramp bark and it barely does anything to the pain um, or even moderately reduces it, but there's still a moderate amount of pain then, again, the practitioner should be thinking, hmm, okay, this could be endometriosis. Right. Now, from so, a, a nutrient point of view, to decrease some of the um, inflammation, 
we've got NAC, which I love, love, love NAC. Mm. We've talked about that previously. Yep. Um, and using NAC three times a day at 600 milligrams has been shown in studies to um, help with endometrial lesions. So that's a great treatment as well. 600, 600 milligrams course, three times a day? 600 milligrams three times a day. Yep, yep. Um, and that study, I believe, was either 12 or 14 weeks where they did that to um, address the uh, endometrial lesions uh, for for women. Um, and then the one that we've talked about, the herb that we've talked about already, too, is you know turmeric or curcumin. Curcumin, I just I just love as an anti-inflammatory, yeah, and that's um, supportive of the immune system as well, too. So a fantastic herb to utilize as well in in your toolbox. Um, what else? Fish oil from an anti-inflammatory point of view, and that's been shown to decrease uh, post-operative um, inflammation and adhesions as well uh, for women who are having endometriosis removed. Um, and of course, probiotics is again a mainstay for me to boost the immune system. And because there's some research on probiotics being involved in estrogen metabolism, it doesn't surprise me that besides boosting the immune system that probiotics can also um, help to support women who are dealing with endometriosis. You mentioned fish oil, and there was an interesting paper I was looking at from 2012, an Iranian Iranian biomedical journal, evaluation of the relationship between endometriosis and omega-3 and omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids. And basically what it's talking Mm -hmm. about is that the levels of fatty acids um, in the serum did not seem to be a marker for endometriosis, but it did seem to be related to the severity of the illness, which is interesting when you look at the potential pro-inflammatory aspects of omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids. So do you find Mm -hmm. that when you're getting these women on, you know, a a high polyunsaturated 6-fatty acid diet or or a low omega-3 um, do you find that there's a real impact when you change that around and you add the fish oil in? Yeah, so that wouldn't be something that I would be looking at for endometriosis uh, because most diets are are high in o- omega-6 anyway. So, uh, And with endometriosis, typically red meat, um, dairy, uh, sugar, those things exas- seem to exacerbate the condition. And when I look you know, I learned that in school, you know, if, you, if your patient has endometriosis or possibly, you know, get rid of red meat and dairy. And there was never really a good explanation otherwise, other than, you know, that's potentially uh, potentially inflammatory. But as I've looked at some studies on, on patients who were looking at uh, dealing with cancer, what they found with, um, with uh, red meat and dairy is there's a certain molecule, a glucose molecule present still in in those animals that is no longer present in humans. So when we ingest that food, we do have an inflammatory reaction against that and create antibodies against that um, molecule. And then that makes a lot more sense because again, that inflammation, kind of like a food sensitivity anyway, you know, creates a problem with the immune system and those who would be susceptible could go on to developing the endometriosis. So removing those three things is extremely important it for actually, somebody dealing with endometriosis. It actually ties in, forgive me, I've just re-looked at the, the abstract for that study and it was talking about the serum ratio of EPA to arachidonic acid, which of course is involved in red mm-hmm. meat consumption. 
was in reasonable right. correlation with the severity of endometriosis. So that's where that yep. pro-inflammatory <laughs> aspect of certain omega-6 comes in. But maybe there's a use for evening primrose here. You know, it's basically sort of fallen I, out of favour. Do you find it works? Uh, I, I don't see that it works on its own, except for, I would say, um, uh, breast soreness. I do still see women um, doing really well with, with it, yep. uh, evening primrose oil. On its own, but I like to use it in combination with the omega threes again, as, a, as a balancing that. There we go. That That's... omega six, omega three ratio, um, and you know we know our plants omega threes uh, are not necessarily as inflammatory as the you know the, the meat based omega threes as well too. So um, you know from the standpoint using uh, evening primrose and fish oil together. Um, I will use that in rheumatoid arthritis, you know, that's a bit off the topic, but another autoimmune, autoimmune issue for rheumatoid arthritis, which again, they're saying endometriosis maybe, yep. um, to utilize those two together, there's some good research on, on that decreasing symptoms in rheumatoid arthritis. So it, would, it wouldn't surprise me, um, you know, if there was a study uh, supporting the use of both with endometriosis as well. Yeah. Are there, are there any natural therapies which you find are of no use or of little use? I guess I, my brain always goes to what actually works. So um, acupuncture has worked for some women in regards to pain, and for some women it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, massage, uh, abdominal massage, a visceral massage, which is a technique that physiotherapists often use to try to break up uh, fascia, uh, and adhesions in the fascia that's mm-hmm. around the um, the organs in our body and muscles that has worked again in some women and has not worked in others. So I guess it depends on the severity, the involvement uh, of the patient, and also you know the practitioner that's performing the the uh, the intervention as well too. Yeah, uh, both. There's two comments there that you made. You know when you said seek out an expert physician. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, what, what do you call the worst doctor in the class? You still call them doctor. Um, okay. and, and likewise, I, I think this is a call to action for any natural health practitioner that really wants to become expert in this. You really should be doing the Baby Maker program to learn about this sort of condition in depth, because this is seriously the, the tip of the iceberg we're going through here. You'll be, you'll be covering right, this sort very of... Quickly, yeah, yeah. You'll be covering this in a lot more depth in the Baby Maker program, right? Absolutely. We'll go into case studies so that, you you know, when you get a report back where they've, you know, had, uh, you know, either moderate, severe, minimal endometriosis, you'll know what to do. You'll know what to do if they suspect endometriosis and, uh, uh, you know, how to treat that person um, that has you know, the estrogen dominance. And, uh, you know, estrogen dominance is just, there's not one herb for estrogen dominance. It's about, okay, how did they develop the estrogen dominance? What's the cause of that? And then, figure out what the, what the causes of that to be able to address it. So we'll have multiple case studies going over it and then going over endometriosis in great detail, as well as other issues with estrogen dominance. Yeah. So can I just ask then, what should women or indeed couples do when seeking advice about having a child when endometriosis has been a factor in the woman's life? How, how do they go about seeking help um, that's going to get the best outcome for them? Well, a couple things come to mind with that, Andrew. First is that just because she's been diagnosed with endometriosis doesn't mean that all the focus should only be on her. We've, and we've talked about this as well in other podcasts that the male fertility is often completely overlooked, especially if there's a diagnosis 
for the female. So number one, it would be that both people, you know, do what they need to do to optimize their situation. And uh, and I've written the book, The Fertility Bible, the five-step fertility solution. So optimizing their eating plan, minimizing toxic exposure, which is a, a big one also for endometriosis, optimizing their supplementation program, exercise, and stress management. So that's across the board what both of the people, both of the um, members of the couple should be doing. Then if a woman has had endometriosis in the past, there's a, there's a chance that there's scar tissue or adhesions there from previous removal of endometriosis um, because that's most times when the only reason that she knew she had it is because she's had it removed. Um, so that might be someone who would have a exploratory laparoscopy a lot sooner than someone else who has never had a diagnosis of endometriosis um, to make sure that there, any adhesions or scarring has not been a problem. Or it's also familial, Andrew. So if the sister has had it or her mother has had it, you know, that also may be another reason to have an exploratory laparoscopy sooner. Now, if the patient doesn't necessarily want to have that surgery, you know, that's fine too. My, what I do is then explain to the patients. We get blood tests. We look at their estrogen progesterone levels. We can also look at an indicator called CA125, which you uh, mentioned ovarian cancer earlier, is that that can be an indicator for ovarian cancer. But in some cases, uh, it can also give us some clue if it's elevated, if there may be endometriosis present. So it's not 100% accurate for that diagnosis. But again, it's it's a piece of the puzzle that can say, maybe you should have this uh, exploratory laparoscopy. Yeah. Um, But we utilize all of our other um, uh, tools in the toolbox of, you know, suggesting blood tests, what is their thyroid doing? The thyroid influences estrogen metabolism, progesterone production. What's their adrenals doing? That's going to influence their immune system and, and progesterone and estrogen as well. So we have to assess all those things um, as well too. This, I think CA125 has sort of had a bad rap. It's sort of saying don't use it for a diagnosis of ovarian cancer. And so the sort of underlying you know, assumption there was don't use it. That's wrong because right. even though it's not specific for ovarian cancer, it's telling you there's something going on. And so Correct. even if you measured it as a, you know, I, I know it's not screening, but if there, was, if, if there was reasonable cause to suspect there was something going on in the woman's abdomen, I would still use that anyway to say if this is high, it's certainly a reason for further exploration. Correct? Correct, right. Hmm. So sometimes things get pushed aside if there's no, uh, if it's not 100% always directly related to what they're, what the, you know, physician or researcher is looking for. Well, to me, that seems a bit crazy. You're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Like you said, there's something going on if this is elevated. So why not have more exploration as to what that might be? And from our point of view, the naturopathic point of view, you know, we always want to explain to the patient what their options are. And I'm not a big proponent of surgeries, but when I deal with the fertility population, their, you know, their perception is they're on this time, you know, uh, issue where they, they lack time. So if I can help them combine conventional medicine with a very skilled, uh, you know, physician, surgeon, and natural treatment together, um, certainly they um, can have a, a better opportunity to become pregnant. Uh, I, I hate to say faster because that, that's such like a marketing term, but, mm. but more quickly, um, you know, by addressing some of the underlying issues straight yeah. away. Yeah. I, I think the, the, the problem that I have with 
pigeonholing CA125 as being of no import is kind of like saying, well, hang on, if that's the case, why are we testing prostate-specific antigen? Because that's not specific, <laughs> and, uh, sure, which sure. is a weird name for yeah. it. But anyway, <laughs> um, I do yeah. want to just ask a question. There, there was a really interesting study that I was looking at, and it was talking about the combination of NAC, alpha-lipoic acid, and bromelain. Now, it was a mouse model, but it was in vivo and in vitro, as a model of endometriosis, showing some quite dramatic um, reductions in you know numbers, size of cysts, um, really quite incredible results. Do you ever use that combination, or do you just choose various things that you know work and and uh, sorry and see what works in that patient? I've used that combination um, not necessarily purposefully, actually kind of accidentally, whereas the alpha lipoic acid will be in the multivitamin that I'm giving the patient, uh-huh. and I'll utilize bromelain as a, a great anti-inflammatory, and then um, utilize the NAC as well. So um, I guess I, I wasn't looking at those three in particular, but I do. I would, those would be a very common combination in the women that I'm seeing for uh, endometriosis. So it doesn't surprise me based on what we know about those three nutrients that they have uh, a great supportive effect, especially anti-inflammatory effect, and then decreasing. If we can decrease inflammation, we decrease stress, yeah, right? So yeah. if we decrease stress in the system, that, that's going to improve hormonal balance, isn't it? Hmm. So it's just kind of a knock-on effect. Yeah. And what about the use of, it's a bit of a favorite um, nutraceutical of mine, and that's uh, methane. 3-3-di-indolylmethane. Do you use that often, sometimes, various patients? Tell me your experience with this compound. I absolutely use it um, with patients. And if if I've done uh, requested blood tests and the physicians have been kind enough to um, uh, provide the blood test for the patients to do estradiol and progesterone seven days post-ovulation and then estradiol on uh, day two, and they consistently are high in estradiol, or have the estrogen dominant symptoms such as sore breasts, um, uh, you know, pain leading up to ovulation, some spotting around ovulation, those types of uh, estrogen dominant uh, symptoms. And I've confirmed that they're either the estradiol E2 is high in blood and or E2, E1 high in saliva. I have seen the best results with DIM. I just, I love it. Hmm. Um, It is, I don't often use it with estrogen dominant symptoms if it's just progesterone deficiency. Yep. Um, no, it's not indicated. It no. doesn't appear to be necessary. Right. It's not indicated, and it can be quite costly in some in some cases. Yep. So, um, but I found it to be extremely effective um, for women who um, just have the the symptoms, estrogen dominance, and or um, endometriosis as well. Yeah, I've I've used it in any sort of proliferative disorder. Um, even hemangiomas, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, which are sort of, I guess, yeah. Um, but um, my issue, I'll just sort of put in a caveat here. You know, some people say, oh, well, I use um, indole-3-carbonyl. I'm not such a fan because the, the proponents of I3C talk about the 216 ratio ad nauseum. They carefully admit mm-hmm. the... Um, um, inverse actions on the four hydroxyestrogens, which are extremely proliferative, and that's where further research mm-hmm. needs to be done. So I'd like to see wherever indol three carbonyl is utilised. I'd like to see some measurement of the four series estrogens, and and in, indeed, if practitioners have their own experiences in measuring this, let us know on FX Medicine. That'd be great. Absolutely, and I, you know, personally, I, I did go through a period of time where I, I wanted to try a couple other products, the indol three carbonyl, and 
there was such a marked difference in the patients who utilized DIM and such a um, a faster response to them utilizing DIM than I ever found with indole 3 carbonyl. So yeah. I just, I have not used it. I don't see it uh, in my practice being, being helpful. DIM is really where I'll go. Yeah, yeah. So what about caveats? What about warnings or things that we've got to be really cautious of if we wanted to treat? Um, I would say what we talked about in the beginning is being very honest and upfront with a patient who has all the symptoms of endometriosis or at least a, a majority of them and letting them know if they, if they don't want to have the laparoscopy, which is totally fine, that it can be a period of time before um, things are, uh, that they are seeing improvement. Um, there is actually one herb before we, uh, before I go on to another caveat that's been used um, along with the pill in, in the study to look at women who've been on endometriosis or who had endometriosis been on the pill and women who've been on pine bark extract, maritime pine uh, bark extract. Yeah, yeah. And they did, the, they were on the pill for, um, I would say a year, 12 months, and then the same with the pine bark extract. And they came off of that, both of them. And um, the pine bark extract had the same uh, impact uh, while on while on it than those with uh, endometriosis who were on the pill. And then also uh, the symptoms came back more quickly in those who had taken the pill than they did in those who had been treated with the pine bark extract, maritime pine bark extract. So that's another herb to, I don't utilize as often because I found it more difficult to find. Yeah. Um, but research definitely supports that. If, um, if as a practitioner, you can get your hands on some maritime pine pine bark extract. Wow. Well done. Uh, uh, another caveat, I guess, with, with patients is, um, you know, educating them. And if you have a bias against, you know, medical practitioners, um, which some natural practitioners do, uh, I'd say put that aside for the person who's trying to, um, you know, deal with an potential endometriosis and improve their fertility at the same time and let the patient decide which, what route they want to take. But do your research as a, as a therapist, as a, as a um, practitioner to find who to refer to. Yeah. There are certain people that I would not refer to. And there are certain people that if I had endometriosis that I would definitely go to. Um, so that's, you know, word of mouth and talking to people and letting patients know if you don't know the doctor that they're going to see, giving them the questions to ask the doctor, how many times have you done this? Have you ever had any complications with this surgery? Is there ever a time where you don't take the endometriosis out? Um, you know, those types of things will give them a hint to their skill level and their confidence level in dealing with endometriosis. So, yeah. Uh, um, very good tips, good practical tips for people to, to ask their medical practitioner, whatever their condition. I think, I think it's really important right. for patients to be mm -hmm. empowered. Doctors don't necessarily don't dislike this. It's all got to do with, you know, being a practitioner and, um, indeed it's part of their job, part of their legal framework. So, um, I just wanted to drop in a point that we were speaking about earlier regarding the cost of endometriosis, um, endometriosisaustralia.org slash research. Uh, one in 10 suffer from endometriosis, 176 million women worldwide suffer from endo, but the average cost of endometriosis per woman per year. Now, this includes things like non-work-related as well as work-related activities. 
is up to around about $12,000 per year when you're talking about time off work, um, problems with pain, pain management, medications, um, what about shopping and study, child caring um, costs, all of that sort of thing, $12,000 per woman per year. That is a huge healthcare cost that needs addressing. That's massive. Absolutely. And and it needs to be addressed in, when they're in their teens and they have this pain and these problems and, and instead of just putting them on the pill and prolonging the problem for, for many of the women, again, working with a complementary practitioner along with the physician to help the, you know um, them address the pain, but also preserve fertility for later, decrease these healthcare costs, more of a preventative type thing. Yeah. Than it, than you know, dealing with it when it becomes a real issue down the road. Well, that's a good point that you make just there. What age does it normally present from? I've seen uh, girls as young as fourteen, you know, presenting with symptoms that could be endometriosis. Now, most physicians won't want to do laparoscopy unless there's significant uh, quality of life issues at that point in time, and they'll wait till they're sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, sometimes. Uh, you know, up to 21 before they'll look at it. So again, those are the girls that are then being put on the pill to try to manage the symptoms instead of address the reason why they've experienced the endometriosis. And those are the girls that are taking the anti-inflammatories on a regular basis. Um, And when I was a coach many years ago uh, for basketball and uh, volleyball in the U.S., there were girls literally taking these, you know, napogesics. I'm trying to think of the name of it, um, of one of them. But they were taking them like candy during their period. And, and, you know, their parents didn't know any better and the physicians. and They'd have stomach issues and all these types of things. So wow. as young as 14, I know that I've seen patients with uh, having the symptoms. Um, but, you know, 17, 18, 19 uh, uh, who've had confirmed cases of endometriosis and have had laparoscopies to address it. Um, it can happen extremely young. Once they start menstruating, of course, um, yeah. they're going to be susceptible to it. Yeah. Okay. And then you're talking, you're talking before about um, being off work. Well, these kids are off school. They, they miss school. They miss social activities. They, you know, they end up in bed for a week at a time with their period. So it can be quite a, um, you know, uh, emotional time for those kids as well, too. Hmm. Stacy, again, I, I would implore all practitioners to do your course the baby maker program which will go through endometriosis and of course all of the other issues with regards to fertility um, in far greater detail than what we've gone through today but I really do thank you for taking us through some of the more important points that are affecting not just um, you know diagnosis and and some treatment issues but how it affects couples and and that's one of the real key things that I think you you address so perfectly, that you will always address these people as people, not just a diagnosis. So thank you once again for joining us on FX Medicine. Well, thank you for having me, Andrew. I really enjoy my time with you guys, and, and, and I really encourage anybody who's interested in the Baby Maker program to talk to their representative at Biocuticals because uh, it's you know, just five to seven hours worth of endometriosis uh, and estrogen dominance, and, and those types of issues is what we'll go into. Uh, versus uh, the information we presented today, like Andrew said, is really just skimming the surface. Mm. And I can tell you right now, the feedback that we're getting is rather awesome for that. Some people are just blown away by the depth that you go into. So well done. Thank you. Appreciate that. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast was proudly brought to you by the Baby Maker Program with Stacey Roberts. 
This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter.